welcome to the BBXX podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, here to bring you conversations that challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to think and talk about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. In the second episode with Dr. Emily Nagoski, she explains the difference between liking something and desiring something. We talk about attachment theory, responsive versus spontaneous desire, and how our system of desire is actually just a set of accelerators versus brakes that once we can learn about and understand, help us actually take the driver's seat of our own desire and our own pleasure. So going into... um the book and how you know no phase of our life of sexuality is necessarily better or worse just like we were saying of these relationships or of your body they're just different um it's just I guess it's incredible and I think that's something people don't realize and I speak to this a lot through the lens of intimacy and how much that that changes throughout your life but it's kind of the same for all of it because so much is about life circumstances and from you know when you're going through puberty or in college or marrying somebody or having a baby um, or aging there are so many changes not only naturally but circumstantially that I think people really underestimate the power and the impact of that and overestimate that it has to be a negative one yeah we have a we really have this idea in our head that there's one right way that our sexuality is supposed to be that our relationships are supposed to be and when we're not doing that one thing then we're doing it wrong So if early in a relationship, in the hot and heavy fallen in love, you're experiencing things sort of based on the script that you've been given culturally about how sex is supposed to work, that feels really good because you feel normal because you're following the rules because your sexuality, quote, works. Uh, And then, you know, 10 years later, that same person and a couple of kids, um, your circumstances are really different. So, you know, in that hot and heavy fallen in love stage, you're in the middle of cooking dinner for your date and your certain special someone starts like kissing on your neck and doing the nice things. And like you let your knees collapse and it can feel really good and you just let dinner burn that night. Uh, we're at 10 years down the line, right? The exact same thing, you're cooking dinner. Now you've got the two kids, your certain special someone touches you in the exact same way, the neck and all the nice things. And you're like, would you please just go set the table? Oh my God, we need to feed the kids and you look at the difference in how your body reacts to the same sensation uh and are you broken and doing it wrong the second way no your context has changed the way your brain interprets that sensation is different because it's happening in a totally different kind of life what we have to when people struggle with their sexuality it's very rarely the case that there's something wrong with them especially that there's something medically wrong with them sometimes that's true the one exception that i want to insert here because it's important is if you're experiencing unwanted pain with sex if you're experiencing pain that's medical talk to a medical provider other than that experience d- difficulties with desire arousal orgasm those are much more likely not to be about something changing in you it's something changing in your context something changing in your life in your world uh in the chapter two of come as you are (laughs) 
basically, I'm just like tapping the chapter two thing in my brain that talks about the dual control mechanism that governs sexual response. There's a sexual accelerator that notices all the sexy stimuli and sends the turn on signal. And then there's the break which nobody ever talks about. We need to talk about it. And the break notices all the very good reasons not to be turns on. And uh, it sends a turn off signal. So the arousal process is a dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. And what happens over the years of a relationship is we tend to sort of accumulate stuff that's hitting the off. And we need to do a sort of periodic clean out, um, like a life-changing magic of tidying up your sexual breaks, (laughs) evaluating our lives. Let's design it. I I love that. And it's fairly simple, especially if you've got a partner who can collaborate with you. You figure out what it is that hits your accelerator and what is it that hits your brakes. And some of the things that hit your brakes, you're not going to be able to do anything in particular about. Like if you have kids, you have those kids. You cannot just sell them to the circus, however much you want to. But sometimes they get in the way of your sex life. That's a thing. That's a thing you can't do anything about. But you can do stuff like, are you worried about getting caught? Okay, so lock or being walked in on. Lock the door. Find some time to like have a childcare provider take care of the kids while you and your partner connect with each other in this way that feels really, really important to you. Uh, go on a little vacation together, twenty-four hours overnight, just to like get away so that you don't have that interruption. Um, cold feet is another breaks hitting thing. This is one of my favorite things about sex research. Um, When they do brain imaging research on orgasm, the way they collect that data is by having people masturbate to orgasm in an fMRI machine. I don't know if you've ever had a a brain scan, but it is not the sexiest environment in the world. It's noisy and weird. And you know you're being observed. Um, And also, it happens to be pretty cold in the room, usually, for the health of the machinery. Uh, And this one research a few years ago, researcher, he found that uh, if his research participants put on socks, they doubled their chances of actually having an orgasm because only about half of the people who even volunteer to do this study. And you got to be a special kind of person to volunteer to masturbate to orgasm in an MRI machine. Uh, If you put on socks, you double the likelihood that you will actually have an orgasm because the researcher reported they were cold, their feet were cold. And made them uncomfortable and distracted. So you put on socks, you get rid of that thing that's distracting and uncomfortable that was hitting the brakes, and it's enough to free up the accelerator to do its job. If you're distracted by like grit on the sheets, just change the sheets. There are simple things for some of the factors that are hitting the brakes. Not all of them. Some of them take more work, but some of them, man, you can just like, all you have to do is the inventory of seeing what it is that's distracting you and getting in your way. I actually can't fall asleep at night. Uh, because I have bad circulation, I have to wear socks because that's ah! literally exactly what happens is I sit there being like, my feet are so cold, but maybe they'll warm up. But yeah, I can't fall asleep without socks never do either. warm up. <laughs> I love this quote from the book, so I'm just going to read it because, again, you talk about the foot break and then the, the hand break you say. Mm-hmm. The second break is a bit different. It's more like the hand break in a car, a chronic, low-level, no-thank-you signal. If you try to drive with a handbrake on, you might be able to get where you want to go, but it'll take longer and it'll use a lot more gas. And then you go on to talk about how it's associated instead of the other ones with fear of 
uh, performance consequences like the kids coming in. Uh, it's associated with fear of performance failure, like worrying about not having an orgasm. But I love just that one line about, you know, you probably will maybe be able to get where you want to go, but it's going to take you a lot longer and you're going to need to use a lot more gas. Exactly. There's uh, When they do research on this, there's one survey item in particular that's predictive of people having this high sensitivity handbrake. And that is, uh, I need things to be just right in order to be sexually aroused. So if that item resonates with you, chances are you have this like sensitive handbrake that's just keeping the brake on all the time. And thinking about context is going to be super important for you. And one of the most important aspects of the context that people tend to overlook when they first hear this is the context of what sexual performance means. Are you worried that you're like, quote, taking too long or your partner's getting bored or uh, you basically you're worrying about the sex you're having while you are having it. Worrying about sex is totally not hitting the accelerator. It's only hitting the brake. So uh, the practice, it comes back to mindfulness over and over. There's this really wonderful book. Finally, hooray. Uh, Lori Brado wrote a book called uh, Better Sex Through Mindfulness. It's nice and short and it is very deeply based in research that was done on women recovering from sexual trauma, recovering from gynecological cancers, uh, from all sorts of situations, practicing mindfulness in order to improve desire, arousal, pleasure, orgasm. Every aspect of sexuality gets better from these pretty simple exercises of just beginning to pay attention to sensations in a non-judgmental way. And it's the non-judgment that really matters of being able to notice that a sensation is happening in your body and not having an opinion about that sensation, just letting that sensation be and do what it needs to do inside your body. Um, So if people are resonating with this, things have to be just right for me, or I'm judging my sexuality even during the sex. Uh, Better Sex Through Mindfulness is the book that I send people to. It's so wonderful. Amazing. Um, I'm definitely going to look at Moana and Better Sex Again, <laughs> planned. Um, another thing you mentioned, because so much of it could be due to, to stress as well. Um, another line in the book that you mention is physical, that physical activity is the single most efficient strategy for completing the stress response cycle and recalibrating your central nervous system into a calm state. So when people say exercise is good for stress, that is for realsy real. Um, <laughs> and I am such a proponent of what I call endorphin therapy. And truly believe that, as you mentioned, basically in that quote, that physical activity is kind of my go-to reset button. And I do try and preach this to so many people that endorphin therapy can be more powerful than a lot of medicine Mm -hmm. out there and kind of natural healing for especially mental health related things. Um, So kind of... A thing my sister has taught me. So the second book I wrote actually with my sister for this reason. Um, She was exercising on a regular basis because that's what everybody told her to do. But she never had experienced that like endorphin rush. I have. I from the time I was 14 or so, I know Mm -hmm. that like, if I get to a certain point in physical activity, I'll be rewarded with this like reset in my body of like, Mm -hmm. oh, She had never, I have an identical twin sister. She had never experienced that. Um, 
So the first chapter of burnout is actually about completing the stress response cycle. And we have like eight evidence-based strategies. Physical activity is obviously the first one and it's very strongly evidence-based. But what worked for her and what works for other people for whom physical activity is just like not, they're not interested, they do not like it, they don't want to. Um, One thing they can do is add a layer of imagination So when my sister was so stressed that she was actually hospitalized with chronic undiagnosable pain that ultimately turned into appendicitis and almost killed her, she had to do a lot of hard work to like deal with the stress in her body and physical activity was not cutting it. So she started, you know, she'd go on the elliptical machine just like she always does and she imagined herself as Godzilla stomping on uh, the school where she was getting her doctorate, uh, like the administrative buildings and the parking lot. And she would stomp on the highway of her 60 minute commute, right? (laughs) Just like purging all this rage. And when she got to the end of her workout, she wasn't just tired and sweaty. She had finally achieved that elated, peaceful, powerful feeling that I got just from if I kept going long enough conquer and physically destroy your enemies <laughs> <laughs> and and going back to the mad woman and you can bring her in and oh uh, yeah <laughs> um yeah that kind of reminds me about there's um a guy called john sarno who kind of studies the mind-body connection yeah. he goes into chronic pain and all of that i've read some of his stuff um I have structural issues and kind of a a disease in my back, but so much like pain or all these other things. And again, all mental health related and kind of like sex, how you said it's rarely actually medical things. Um, So often the pain or the stress in the bedroom or whatever is is coming from these other things. And so it's healing the mind to, to free the body. Yeah. John Sarno was actually where Amelia started. She saw amazing. Yeah. I, I was like, here, have some books about how to do this thing. Because remember, I'm a health educator and I ha- with an identical twin sister and had no idea she didn't know this stuff. So I was like, here's a nice accessible book about this. And she saw the word rage on the page. She was and a man. called me sobbing. Like this book here says that I carry rage in my body. That it's not oh, just yeah. an illusion that I need to like get the better of. It's a physical thing that happens. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> oh no. We need to start. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she, she connected with her rage. Uh, and then I started handing her like super sciencey, nerdy books. And the more science I gave her, the more into it she was. Because even though she's an artist, she's a musician, she's a professional musician, but she's also a skeptic and a nerd. Uh, so the harder core about like the neuroscience I got, the more she was like, oh, I'm convinced that uh, emotions are biological events that really happen in my body. And therefore, they have biological consequences that really happen in my body. And so when my doctor says this is just stress, what he means is there's this enormous cascade of hormones and adrenaline and cortisol that's, you know, slowly destroying my organs if I don't complete the stress response cycle to purge all these chemicals out of my body oh i see yeah that's tough but as you say it's a tunnel you got to go through yeah um reset the brakes 
Right. The reason it goes <laughs> come as you are is because stress is maybe the most common factor that hits the brakes uh, for a lot of people, especially women. Like we just live our lives constantly surrounded by stressors, some of which we have control over and some of which we don't have control over. And if we waited until all our stressors were gone before we could free up our break to enjoy sex, that we'd be waiting forever. So instead of trying to like solve all the problems that are causing the stress, you go right to the source. You go right to the physiology of the stress happening in your body. You complete the stress response cycle so that your break is freed up and you can have that like connected, pleasurable sex with somebody you really like and really trust. Uh, and then the next day, get up and be in a better place to deal with those problems that are still there. But you have this partner with you that you feel strongly connected to and your body is healthy. So you have the physical strength to cope with whatever it is that's out there. Right. I feel as though maybe mine don't hit the brakes as much, not even in the sexual context, but then there's when you find you can just keep going without um, yeah. completing the stress response, response cycle. I think I'm very good at that. And that's yes. actually why I don't complete it. So it's kind of just a self-fulfilling. That was Amelia's situation too, my sister. Uh, basically, I've come to see my very loud internal voice as being a low threshold of tolerating that kind of discomfort, like my body just won't let me, it'll mm. scream at me until I do something about it. And my sister doesn't have that sort of like really loud self being like, sit down, go to bed, go for a run like I do. Um, and so she was able to just keep going, even though her body was literally like killing her slowly. I guess as we kind of get closer to wrapping up, to touch quickly on attachment behavior and you mentioned in the book that sometimes sex is used as an attachment behavior where it's kind of that perfect everybody's falling in love and what you see in the movies and sometimes it has kind of the same symptoms and feelings it gives you but is it actually an expression of a very different psychology that is that more kind of desperate grasping mm -hmm. search for attachment that you mentioned and helping people realize one that there is a difference and that one while one f might feel better um, sometimes or stronger isn't necessarily what we should all be searching and lusting after and how to kind of recognize uh, the difference and and within your own behavior yeah the relationship between attachment and sex is something that the research has only fairly recently begun to explore, but it turns out to be so important that you really can't understand how human sexuality works without thinking about the ways it's related to the attachment mechanism, which is this biological bonding process. Sex is a social behavior for us. It links us together. It helps us to feel united with some certain special someone uh, whom we hopefully really trust and like. And under ideal circumstances, it is that like, I love you, I wanna feel close, to you this is so pleasurable and great but sometimes the dark side of it is sex is an attachment behavior so when our attachment bond is threatened we might feel motivated to pursue sex with someone to repair the attachment bond even if the attachment is threatened because the relationship isn't very good for us or because that partner is uh abusive john gottman did research on Women who are in physically abusive relationships where their partners um, hit them and 
he was totally puzzled by the fact that these women reported that some of the most intense sex of the relationship followed these episodes of abuse. But it makes perfect sense if you understand that sex is an attachment behavior, it's a social bonding behavior, and those episodes of violence represent a breach in the attachment, a threat to the relationship, obviously. And so when the partner comes back and says, I'll never do it again, I'm sorry, and uh, no matter how angry you are, like being in that relationship feels safer than not being in the relationship. And so your body pushes you to want to connect sexually so that you can repair the bond and sustain the relationship. Um, The animal research analogy here is back in the 50s when Harry Harlow was uh, raising baby capuchin monkeys. These are the classic studies of like the hard mother and the soft mother. Um, When he had these mechanical mothers for these little baby monkeys um, shoot little spikes or jet really cold air at the monkeys to shoo them away. When they're rejected actively, when they're injured by these mechanical mothers, what do the baby monkeys do? They run back to the mothers and they they stroke the mechanical mother's face and they make eye contact with the little like ping pong ball eyes and they uh, touch and hug and try to love in response because they need that attachment so desperately. Attachment is a survival response in humans. We We depend on our relationships with other people literally for our survival. It's that important. So sometimes attachment driven stress Uh, sex is profoundly pleasurable because it reinforces the bond that feels great and sometimes attachment driven sex is uh, potentially dangerous and we need to think really critically about what that impulse in our body is trying to tell us does it mean that we're afraid of our partner like of being alone does it like what actually deeply is happening in our bodies when we have just because it's something that we're wanting is that the same thing as something that we are liking those are not identical processes the short quick and dirty sort of assessment is is this sexual desire being motivated by pleasure and joy or is it being motivated by fear specifically fear of abandonment yeah and i think what's so interesting too is that when you say that um People probably, because some of this fight or flight physiologically in your parasympathetic nervous system Mm -hmm. can kind of have the same physiological symptoms and without the mental label, you don't know if it's like excitement or or fear. Um, So trying to, to kind of, again, label these and recognize what the source is, even though the feelings might be similar, but that part with the monkey makes me so sad i know <laughs> in the ping pong eyeballs right um that's so like I, I hope the monkeys were okay afterwards i'm sure they weren't which just says so much yeah. more and could we could just go and launch so into a whole it was other a long time ago standards ethical standards around animal research have changed drastically right. partly in response to the research that harlow did so yes there was suffering and It's really important that we acknowledge it and talk about it and honor the struggle that those monkeys went through because it has resulted in better conditions for the future. And it will continue going forward. 
So just so much science behind toxic relationships. Yes, that was a lot of people. The foundation, the beginning of our understanding of how social connection is a biological process. It's not just a social process that happens out in the world. It happens in our chemistry. Um, I have found that one of the most valuable things people take from Come As You Are is the separation between uh, desire, like wanting something, and liking something. When people begin to practice being really clear about uh, you can like something without wanting more of it. You can want something without particularly liking it. And you can uh, neither want nor like something. And you can both want and like something. When people get clear about how separate those things are and when they co-occur versus when they don't occur uh, and how complex, remember the dual control model means that you can be ambivalent about stuff. You can both like it and not like it simultaneously. You can want it and not want it simultaneously. The better people get at tuning in to that language and what those experiences are like in their bodies, the clearer they get about being able to communicate with their partner about what works for them and about creating a context and a situation that maximizes their access to all the pleasure that their body can give them. Yeah, that's an incredible distinguishment, um, the liking versus wanting. And um, speaking on that part about desire, you in in the beginning of the book mentioned that the, the, the research on sex and sexuality basically did not include anything about desire originally. So the theories that were sh- formed at that time and that from there shaped our culture and conditioned the way we think had literally left out one of the most important aspects of itself. Yeah. The original research, think back to Kinsey and Masses and Johnson. Masses and Johnson, for example, were studying the physiology of the sexual response process in the laboratory. People would come in and get paid to masturbate to orgasm in the lab while they're being observed by people and by measured on a bunch of instruments. Uh, So, of course, they were not measuring desire because desire didn't enter into it. It was just people coming in and doing it because they were getting paid to do it. Uh, So... Their work formed the foundation of the original evidence-based sex therapy, and it did not include desire because that didn't show up in the laboratory. But it turns out it is desire is the single most common reason a couple seeks sex therapy. So uh, a sex therapist named Helen, Ka- Helen Singer Kaplan was looking at the treatment failures in her clinic among all the therapists doing sex therapy with lots of different couples. And she found that uh, the problems they were least able to treat were desire problems. And no wonder because there weren't any treatments specifically for desire because desire was not a part of their theoretical model. So she's the one who added desire. The only difficulty is that she added it in a way that was not complete. It assumed that desire comes first in the process, like first you want it and then you go through your arousal process, which is uh, in the research now they call it spontaneous desire. It seems to appear out of the blue uh, in anticipation of pleasure. That is one of the normal healthy ways to experience desire. Erica Moen, who's the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are, draws spontaneous desire as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Just kaboom, you want it. Whoa, what do I get the sex now? Ooh, I would like the sex. Um, but it turns out what 
the couple decades of research after Helen Singer Kaplan showed us was that um, another way that people can experience desire is if you begin with pleasure, like, you you know, it's Saturday at three o'clock, you, me in the red underwear, let's do this thing. Um, You put your body in the bed, you let your skin touch your partner's skin without desire, but just like I said we would. And so let's do the thing. And your body experiences those sensations and is like, oh, right. I really like this person and I really enjoy doing this. And the desire emerges in response to the pleasure. That's responsive desire. And it is a normal, healthy way to experience desire. It doesn't have to be desire first, then arousal pleasure. It can be arousal, pleasure, and then the desire emerges in response. That's also normal and healthy, which is why the scheduled sex that so many sex therapists recommend, so many sex educators like me are like, just put it in your calendar. Uh, The reason why it works well, (laughs) I talked to this amazing sex therapist named Christine Hyde in New Jersey who uses this analogy with her clients. Uh, Like if you imagine your best friend invites you to a party, you say yes, because it's your best friend and it's a party. But then as the date gets closer, you start like worrying about the traffic and thinking, oh, I got to get childcare. And do I really want to like put on my party clothes on a Friday night after I get home from a long week? But you said you would go. So you put on your party clothes and you go to the party. And what happens? Most of the time you have fun at the party. If you're having fun at the party, you are doing it right. And there's no amount of spontaneously longing to go to parties that's going to make that party a party worth going to. So now that we really actually understand the complexities of desire, how it changes depending on context, all the various ways people can experience desire, uh, we have this much more comprehensive picture of the way sexual initiation happens, the way people experience the relationship between desire and sexual behavior, engaging with a partner, uh, and how sexual pleasure actually works. I love the going to the party metaphor. <laughs> I know. What I heard was like, oh my God. That's what Especially because like, really, uh, you know, who does want to go to the party more than, the normalizing you know, part half the I time? As other people <laughs> had that feeling of like, ugh, I have to go to the party. I thought I was the only one. <laughs> but like, the party <laughs> most of the time, yeah, exactly, is amazing once you're there. I was laughing because before you got to the party metaphor, I was thinking of going to the gym because... Yeah. I don't often, you know, I, I, I'm not like, I cannot wait to get up at 6 a.m. tomorrow and drag myself to the gym. I just <laughs> do it. I set the alarm because I know that once I'm there, not even like at the beginning of the class, but, you know, maybe like 20 minutes into the class, you're going to be thinking, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, glad I came. So glad this I is the greatest thing ever. This I'm amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Just you're kind of that, that reset button and you're having a great time. But that doesn't mean that you would need to like be excited for your alarm to go off at 6 a.m. And yeah, get like out of your warm, cozy bed. Up, you're like, yeah, baby, let's do this thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and so that part of kind of reactive desire, I have actually um, explained to so many people and it often seems like this light bulb that clicks for people about oh it's being open to the experience and letting it happen and then seeing how I feel and judging patterns and making decisions um, based on on that not based on these like predeterminants that are actually quite irrelevant sometimes yeah my one of my last questions would be how do you define desire (laughs) 
<laughs> I, uh, I avoid divining desire if I possibly can. Uh, since Come As You Are has come out, and I've spent all this time talking about this science, um, one of the things I learned is that people remember things better and believe you more if what you say rhymes. So, <laughs> uh, I made up a thing that I think addresses the whole desire conundrum, which is this. Pleasure is the measure. Pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. It is not about how much you desire the sex. It's not about how much you crave kaboom sex. It's not about what you do, who you do it with, how often you do it, where you do it, what positions or how many orgasms you have. It's just whether or not you like the sex you are having. If you're having fun at the party, you are doing it right. And desire will emerge in response to pleasure. If you put pleasure at the center of your definition of sexual well-being, all the other puzzle pieces will fall into place. Pleasure is the measure. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. Well, then the last, the very last thing would be if you have any, which you've already given us a lot of um, actionable advice for our listeners to kind of enact um, the the kind of wisdom that you've just shared with us within their own lives and behavior. Gosh. Oh, so my three go-tos are pay attention to your partner. Your partner is your most abundant source of both things that hit the accelerator and things that hit the brake. And so paying attention to your partner can unlock a whole lot of stuff. Pay attention to your partner. Two is, uh, it's not about orgasm. Take orgasm off the table entirely. A lot of sex therapists recommend that as a practice. Um, Instead of orgasm being the goal, pleasure is the goal. Whether or not you have an orgasm is beside the point. There are lots of other ways to experience pleasure besides orgasm. And not all orgasms are even that pleasurable. And then the third one is to enjoy the sex you are having. Even if it's only with yourself. Again, if you're having fun at the party, you're doing it right. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation um, and elaborating next time more on your, your latest book. The BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate, is produced by Sasha Laurie in Berkeley, California. Dialogue, narrative, and content crafting by Amy Soper. Audio editing, good music vibes, and sound mixing, Daniel Herrera. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time.